Let's open together with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask that you would unfold it for us. God, we pray that you would cause our hearts to burn within us. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us from error. We pray that you would keep us from drawing unwarranted conclusions. We pray that you would keep us from being misled from, from our own imaginations or from mistaken ideas that we might come to. Father, we ask that you would help us to, to latch on to exactly what the biblical authors intended to communicate. Father, we pray that your spirit would illumine us and that the same spirit that inspired these texts would also be guiding us in our interpretation of them. Father, we ask that you would particularly tonight help us to understand the big story of the Bible, what is revealed here about what the world is and what is wrong with it and what you've done to address the curse and the, the affliction. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice in Christ and to revel in your mercy and to shape our own identity in response to what you revealed about, about who we are and about who Christ is and how we are to respond to him in faith. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you we pray for your help. We pray also, Lord, for all those who make it possible for us to be here. And we ask your blessing on our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may be familiar with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, story, The Lord of the Rings, those, those three big books. And if you've, if you've worked through those books, or even if you've only seen the movies, you've perhaps, you've perhaps discerned that there's a backstory. There, there's a story that's not going on on the surface of these novels as they unfold. It, it's a story that is, at some points, brought out onto the surface, but only in, in little hints, never in an overt kind of expository way, do you get the whole panorama of the big story of this, this world that Tolkien is telling us about just laid right out there for us to behold. Uh, in this backstory, there's a king who's not acknowledged as a king, and, and he comes in humility, and he suffers for a long time, and only after a long period of suffering and, and, and an embattled uh, time of persecution is he eventually enthroned. And, and I think that Tolkien got these ideas right out of the Bible. Because in the Bible story, what we have are, are these events that take place on the surface, and then under the surface, I would suggest to you, something that's assumed by the biblical authors and that at points they actually bring out, but most of the time it's just under the surface resulting in the kinds of the things that they say. There is this, this backstory, so to speak, this, this large panoramic narrative that is informing everything that they say and everything that they've written. In our time together tonight, what I'd like to do is focus on 
the story that informs biblical theology. So let me start, though, by, by suggesting a definition for biblical theology. A lot of people use that phrase, and, and you might hear it with words like salvation history, or you might hear uh, reference to themes and how those themes relate to one another. What I'd like to do is propose a definition for biblical theology that I hope will be beneficial for you, that'll be easy to remember, and that will help you as you study the scriptures, as you preach and teach the scriptures, and as you share the gospel and disciple your children. As we approach this definition, though, I want to start with a little bit of art history. So I know I've got an art history teacher here. Do you recognize this painting? Oh, it's not up here. How do I get this? It's on my screen in front of me. Blank screen. That's right. Yeah, what do we do here to get this working? Do I need to do something? There we go. Oh, look at that. There, there. It was there for a second. There we are. Do you recognize this painting? Yeah, the the painter is Magritte. The painting is actually entitled Son of Man. Now, I I don't know exactly what Magritte was up to with this, entitling this Son of Man and putting a man looking through an an apple, but for my purposes, I'm going to propose an interpretation. All right, this this could be debunked. I don't know that Magritte actually ever uh, articulated what he intended, but I think there's some biblical symbolism here, isn't there? With with a title like Son of Man and an apple, here's what I'm going to propose. Magritte has given to us the object of temptation in the Garden of Eden, and he puts it in front of the the, the person's face so so that it's as though the guy is viewing the world through the object of temptation. Now, as as we think about what biblical theology is, incidentally, I didn't actually do this. Uh, Crossway came up with this. I think that's a nice adaptation of the painting, don't you? Rather than the apple being in front of the guy's face, you have a copy of the scriptures in front of the guy's face. And I think that this is getting at exactly the kind of thing that Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he says in verse 8 that the words that he has commanded shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, uh, what is biblical theology? I would propose to you that, that biblical theology is the attempt to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. Let me say that again. Biblical theology is the attempt to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. Now let's just walk through bits and pieces of that definition. What is an interpretive perspective? An interpretive perspective is this set of assumptions and presuppositions and doctrinal truths and and, uh, awareness of facts that people assume and take for granted as they talk to one another. So if I were to to say to you all, uh, my son is really pulling for King James now that the playoffs have gotten to us. Many of you would know that I'm saying, essentially, my son Jake is a Miami Heat fan, and he, and, he, and he likes LeBron James. If we were in Ohio, that would be a pretty unpopular thing to say. My other son, he prefers the cheer thunder up, and, and, and maybe you'd, you'd understand from that, that that my second-born son Jed is really pulling for the Oklahoma City Thunder. What, what, I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm illustrating the way that there, there is a set of information that we all know. 
and that I don't have to articulate explicitly for you to know exactly what I'm talking about. So another illustration of this would be to say, I just messed that up for you. Sorry about that. Uh, I think if I go back here. There we go. Another illustration of that would be to say something like this. Maybe, maybe this will resonate, maybe not, I'm not sure. But if I were to say something like this, I don't know why the tattooed quarterback did not run the football. Many of you are going to go directly to that last drive of the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl, and, and you're going to think of Kaepernick throwing the ball four times. He's the best running football quarterback in football. Why didn't he run the football? So, so we have this information that we share in common. And what I'm suggesting to you is that the biblical authors have shared information and that that, that shared information builds up their interpretive perspective. And they have applied that interpretive perspective to earlier scripture, or in the case of the earliest biblical author, whom I take to be Moses, the very earliest biblical author, I think he applied this interpretive perspective to traditions that, that came down to him about Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and these other things that took place prior to Moses' life. And what I'm going to do in a, in a moment is try to walk you through and show you how I think Moses has actually selected events and then framed those events such that his perspective is reflected in his presentation of these traditions about, we're going to focus on Abraham in particular. And then what he knows about Abraham informs how he presents the account of what has happened in his own day and then what he says to Israel about the future. And then as we proceed, we'll also see that the prophets have, I would suggest, learned this interpretive perspective from Moses, and then they've applied it to their situation, and they're forecasting forward on the basis of what they've learned from Moses and how they're now applying the interpretive perspective that they got from him. And then I would argue that the same things are happening with the authors of the Gospels and the authors of the New Testament letters and John in Revelation. So basically, I, I, I'm prepared to, to try to demonstrate that there is a unified interpretive perspective, that there's a way of reading the Bible that Moses models and then that is picked up by later biblical authors as they learn the scriptures and then as they address whatever it is that they are, they're saying to the people of God in their own day. Uh, so let's, let's dive in here. And, and where I'd like to start, I'm going to assume a lot, okay? I'm going to assume that um, Blake has, has said a lot to you about um, the, the Abrahamic covenant earlier today, so I'm going to take all that for granted, even though I wasn't here to hear it. My apologies. Uh, let, me, let me just start with a few comments about, about God putting Adam in the garden in Genesis 1. If you'd like to turn to Genesis 1 with me for just a second, there, there's some important things here for us to see. Uh, I just want to hone in for a moment on Genesis 1.28, where we read, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, let's just pause for a moment here. We know that God created them male and female, verse 27, and then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. So together, they, they can't be fruitful and multiply apart from one another. Together, they're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
We're going to see in chapter 2 that, that God puts them in this garden. And if you look at Genesis 2.10, you see a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So it sounds like within this region called Eden, there's this area referred to as the garden within Eden, and then out of Eden is, is this river flowing into Eden to water the garden there. And then apparently outside the region known as Eden, there's this broader area of the dry land. So in Genesis 1.28, when the Lord says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, I think what's being suggested is they are to populate all the dry lands and they are to bring all the dry lands into subjection so that all the dry lands are like Eden in that, or like the garden in particular, in that it's a cultivated area, it's an area where God is going to walk with man, he's going to be known and served and worshipped and present with his people. And, and you know what happens. Adam and Eve sin, and they are cast out of the garden. But as they're being expelled from the garden, some very significant things are stated. Uh, and, and because of our time, I just want to draw your attention to Genesis 3.15, where the Lord says to, to uh, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, here's where I think uh, Moses is actually practicing for us his interpretive perspective because he's referring here to offspring, which we might translate literally seed. And, and he's just said in verse 14, uh, we didn't look at this, but in verse 14 he says, cursed are you to the serpent. Now, if we ask in response to verse 15, Moses, who are the seed of the serpent? I think Moses might give us a little, a little wry smile and say, keep reading. Read carefully and keep reading. I'm not talking about snakes. I'm not talking about literal offspring. And what you find as you keep reading is in, in Genesis 4, 7. I'm, I'm sorry, it's not 4, 7. It's 4, 11. Genesis 4, 11, after Cain kills Abel, you find the very words spoken to the serpent. Cursed are you spoken to Cain. And, and, and the Lord says to Cain there in Genesis 4.11, now you are cursed from the ground. It's not as apparent in English as it is in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's the exact same uh, two words, arur atah, cursed are you. So the Lord says those words to the serpent. He doesn't say those words to Adam. He doesn't say those words to Eve. But then Cain kills Abel, and the Lord says to Cain, cursed are you. Now, I'm, I'm really certain of this interpretation, and I'm really certain that this is what Moses wants to communicate because I think Jesus has verified it. So over in John 8, uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll just summarize what Jesus says there. Jesus says to the, the Jews in Jerusalem, he says, why do you seek to kill me? And they say to him, who's seeking to kill you? And he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus is essentially saying to those guys, you are the seed of the serpent. And just as Cain murdered Abel and, and, and thereby Satan was at work, so also now you're trying to kill me. And then John, in, in 1 John 3, he shows us that he has learned to read the Bible and life from Jesus and so he says in 1 John 3, by this we know who the children of God are, 
who are the children of the devil. And then he goes on to talk about how the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And, and, he, and, and then he specifically names Cain murdering his brother. So Jesus, I think, now I know he was God, he's omniscient, yes, amen. But I think he also studied the scriptures. And Luke 2 tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So I think Jesus learned to read the Bible from Moses. And then he taught his disciples to read the Bible this way, including the Apostle John learning to read these kinds of things from Jesus and then apply them to his situation. So as we understand the perspective of the biblical authors... I would submit to you that we come to understand how to identify the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then we come to apply the scriptures' judgments and perhaps imprecatory prayers or blessings to the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, respectively. Let me give you a couple of more things about the seed of the serpent here. Genesis 9, uh, we see another instance of a cursing when um, Noah responds to what his youngest son Ham did, and he says in Genesis 9, 25, cursed be Canaan. And then he goes on to bless uh, Shem and, and speak words of blessing to Japheth. I think this is relevant to what comes after. I think it indicates that the Canaanites are going to be viewed in, in this narrative as the seed of the serpent. And then Something very specific is said to us in Genesis 12, 3, when the Lord says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. At this point, I think we can say safely, anyone who is against Abraham is seed of the serpent. And, and that's how we should read the Bible. That's how Moses intends for us to read the rest of the book of Genesis, the rest of the Old Testament, I think it's how the New Testament authors intend for us to read the New Testament. Anyone who is opposed to Abraham and his seed and, and God's fulfillment of the promise, the blessing of Abraham, seed of the serpent. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm prepared to respond to the seed of the serpent with imprecatory prayers, with, with, a, with a caveat that's not always stated in those imprecatory prayers. But that caveat goes like this. Lord, use this demonstration of your justice against the seed of the serpent to bring them to repentance. But if you're not going to bring them to repentance, crush them. Keep them from accomplishing their evil. Keep them from destroying families. So, so what, what I'm trying to do here is understand the perspective of the biblical authors and then apply it, embrace it and apply it. So we've got this word in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman ultimately going to conquer the seed of the serpent. I think Paul applies that in Romans 16 when he talks about, he says to that church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And on that basis, I would say to you, if, if there are things developing in your culture, let's say, that look like uh, Christians might be persecuted, look like churches might have a hard time, uh, hypothetically speaking, something to do with marriage, I don't know, or, or uh, maybe life issues. I, I think these things are, are looming on the horizon. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Anyone that's opposed to, to the God of the Bible, anyone that's opposed to Jesus, they're seed of the serpent. We want them to be converted. We want them to be saved as they come under the realization, I'm under the wrath of God, and I need a Savior. 
So they need to experience judgment so that they'll feel their need to be saved. And, and we should pray that way for them. Okay, so essentially, in the big story of the Bible, what I've been telling you about is who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. I've been telling you about the guys in the black hats, uh, the seed of the serpent, and the guys in the white hats, the seed of the woman. Ultimately, there's one seed of the woman, Jesus, and we only wear white hats by identification with him. Now I, I want to get into what I, what I think is, is something like a paradigmatic plot line that, that informs all of the Bible. So look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 12. And I just want to draw, some, draw attention here to some significant features of this narrative that, that I think Moses has noticed. So ultimately, all we have is what Moses gave to us in writing. That's all we have. And then, and then we have how later authors interpreted what Moses gave to us. So, here, you know, it, it could be that perhaps on Mount Sinai or maybe as he was in his tent composing, the Lord spontaneously revealed all of these events that happened prior to his life to Moses. That, that's a possibility. Another possibility is that Moses received these, these accounts of what had happened to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the others, and he thought about them, and he looked at, he looked at their lives, and then he looked at his own experience, and he saw some correspondences. And he thought to himself, you know, I think these correspondences are significant. And, and I, I'm of the opinion that Moses saw these correspondences and thought to himself, the fact that these things are being repeated perhaps indicates that we're going to see more of this in the future. And then on the basis of what we see in the prophets um, and, and on the basis of the way the New Testament authors use these things, I think that's, I think that's exactly what has happened. So look with me at Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt. Does that happen anywhere else? Yeah, that happens again. It, it, it sort of gets started almost in Genesis 26 when there's a famine. Genesis 26, 1, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine. But on this occasion, the Lord says to Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. But then later in Genesis, Jacob and his sons are going to go down to Egypt. Why? Because there was a famine. And, and then as, as the, this narrative goes on, this is one of those accounts where Abraham um, tells this lie about Sarah being his sister, and, and Pharaoh seizes her. Okay, so we've got a famine, and then a descent by uh, the people of God, essentially, into Egypt. And then the Pharaoh takes them captive, makes... He's, he's making a move to make Sarah, essentially, a slave in his, in his harem. Look at verse 16. For her sake, this is Pharaoh, he dealt well with Abram, and he, Abram, had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, so we've got a famine, a descent into Egypt, followed by Pharaoh enriching Abram. Does that sound familiar? And then what's going to happen after that? After that, look at verse 17. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Well, we've seen that elsewhere in the Bible, haven't we? And, and, then, 
And then at that point, Pharaoh called Abram and said there in verse 18, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abraham is going to come up out of Egypt. He's going to pass through the wilderness. He's going to enter into the promised land. And look at Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Abraham gets into the, the land of promise, and he, he asks the Lord about the promise that the Lord has made to him. And then there's this incident where, where the Lord tells him, essentially, I'm going to keep that promise. That's what's going on in verse 5. And in response to the Lord's assertion that he's going to keep the promise, in verse 6, he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted his belief to him as righteousness. So Abraham is justified by faith right there. And then look at verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord. When you've got those capital letters that are squashed, you call them small caps there, that, that represents the divine name, which some suggest we should vocalize Yahweh. I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That statement is almost exactly the same as Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, the people of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai, and uh, Moses describes in Exodus 19 about how the, 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 the thick cloud comes down on Mount Sinai, and there are these lightning blasts, and there's thunder, and the mountain is quaking, and, and there's smoke. And, and then in chapter 20, the Lord begins to speak out of the midst of the fire. And the first words out of his mouth are, I am the Lord who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, what I would propose to you has happened is Moses has heard these traditions about Abraham. There's a famine, a descent into Egypt, a, a kind of captivity, an, a, a kind of plundering of the Egyptians, and then the Lord plagues Pharaoh, and then coming up into the land of promise where there's, there's this, I am the Lord who brought you out. And then what happens here in Genesis 15 is um, Abraham is instructed to cut this animal in half, and then the smoking fire pot you know, there's, there's thick darkness, there's cloud, there's smoke, there's fire. It's, it's similar to Exodus 19, isn't it? Goes between the pieces as, as the Lord enters into this covenant with Abraham. Now, I think what's happened is Moses has seen this in Abraham's life, and then he sees like a redo of it in the Exodus from Egypt. As the people go down to Egypt in response to a famine, famine Pharaoh oppresses them and enslaves them, and then the Lord visits these great plagues, and he gives them instructions to plunder the Egyptian. Egyptians. They come out to Mount Sinai, the, the, the fire, the smoke. The Lord speaks, I am the Lord who brought you out. And I think Moses thinks to himself, I've got to note these details in Abraham's life. Because what happens with Abraham is foreshadowing what has happened with Israel at the Exodus. And then there, there are some indications that perhaps... Moses is presenting the, um, the conquest of the land as though it will match the events of the exodus from Egypt. And, and when you look at, at the early chapters of Joshua, there are all these points of contact between Joshua and Moses. For instance, you remember how Moses 
he has this encounter with the Lord at the burning bush, and then, and then Joshua meets the captain of the Lord's host, and what does the captain of the Lord's host tell him to do? Take off your sandals for the, this is holy ground. And, and um, just as the Red Sea was parted, uh, the Jordan River is parted, just as Israel moved through the Red Sea on dry ground, they moved through the Jordan River on dry ground. Bruce Waltke says that there are 18 points of contact between the early narratives of Joshua and uh, the exodus from Egypt. Why would that be? I'm going to make a proposal for you. I would suggest that Joshua is presenting the conquest of the land of Canaan as a kind of new exodus. Joshua is saying this, this taking of the land is after the pattern of the exodus from Egypt. Now, why are they doing this? I think they're doing this because they understand that the that God's action in the past is being treated as a paradigm to point to God's action in the future. So I think Moses understands this. I think Joshua learns it from Moses. And then the later biblical authors, I think, learn it from Moses and Joshua and the others so that Israel's prophets come to treat the past as a paradigm that they use to prophesy the future. Let's look at an instance or two of this. Look with me, if you will, at... at um, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 16. Now, um, I've left out a detail that, we'll, that, we'll, that I'm going to briefly summarize. In several key narratives, Leviticus 26, uh, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 28 through 32, Moses basically tells Israel what's going to happen to them when they go into the land. He tells them, you're going to go into this land, you're going to break the covenant, and when you've broken the covenant, the Lord's going to scatter you into every nation under heaven. And then he tells them, particularly in Deuteronomy 4, he says, but from there you will seek the Lord and you will find him when you search after him with all your heart. So they're going to be exiled from the land, Moses is telling them, and then they're going to turn and repent and seek the Lord, and they're going to find the Lord, and then essentially Moses says the Lord's going to restore you to the land. So there's going to be this return from exile. What the prophets discern, I think, on the basis of their study of earlier Scripture and then their own, their, the, the, their own experience of the, the Spirit guiding them and the Lord revealing them these things to them, the prophets discern... We, we, we're either about to be or we have been exiled and we're going to experience a new exodus kind of uh, moment of deliverance and that is going to set in motion the return from exile. So look with me at Jeremiah chapter 16 and let's pick this up in verse, verse 12. Jeremiah says, Because you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, verse 13, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Jeremiah is basically using the language of Deuteronomy from passages like chapters 28 through 32, chapter 4, verses 26 through 31, other passages to say, you're, you're about to experience the curse of the covenant. We've broken the covenant. God is about to send us into exile. And, and I think if, if you boil down the message of, 
of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, you can basically bring it down to this. We've broken the covenant. We're about to go into exile. But God is going to do a new exodus kind of salvation for us and restore us to the land. And the future is going to be like a repristination of of where we started in Eden, only it's going to be better. So they're they're pointing forward to this glorious eschatological restoration after after the new exodus and the return from exile, which is what Jeremiah is about to talk about here in verse 14. Um, So he's just said in verse 13 that they're going to be driven out of the land. Now verse 14, Jeremiah says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, why would they make that statement? Why would they make the statement, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt? Well, they say that because that's what he said about himself, isn't it? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And what Jeremiah is saying is, you are not going to identify the Lord by the exodus from Egypt anymore. But it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but, verse 15, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Essentially, Jeremiah is saying, the Lord is going to do a new work of deliverance that will be so big that it will eclipse the exodus from Egypt in your thinking about how the Lord saves his people. And you will no longer identify the God of the Bible as the God of the exodus. You will identify the God of the Bible as the God of this new act of salvation that is going to make you stop talking about the exodus. Verse 16, Behold, the Lord says, I am sending for many Fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. Now think about what he's just said. He's he's saying, essentially, I'm going to repay their iniquity and their sin doubly. That's like Isaiah Chapter 40, verse 2, you know, uh, comfort, comfort, my people, for, for you have received from the Lord's hand double for all your iniquity, that kind of statement. So he's going to doubly repay their sin, which may mean it's going to be an eye-for-eye eye kind of repay, repayment. The punishment's going to fit the crime. And then he says, after I've doubly repaid their sin, I'm going to send for fishers and hunters, and they're going to gather them all. Now, what happens in Israel's history is they get exiled, and Jeremiah narrates that at the end of his prophecy. And um, essentially, the whole story of Joshua to Kings, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, is a story of how they enter into the land, break the covenant, and then get exiled, just as Moses forecasted. And and then under, uh, well, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we read about how there was this initial return to the land. They returned to the land, but they didn't experience what we might refer to as the glorious eschatological restoration. They didn't experience the desert blooming. 
They didn't experience the land being renewed like the Garden of Eden. They didn't experience their sons and daughters prophesying like Joel uh, says, says will happen in the latter days. All those latter day prophecies weren't realized. So they had returned to the land, but a, a new day, Davidic Messiah hadn't arisen. They hadn't experienced a new covenant. They hadn't uh, experienced a new Eden. They, they really hadn't experienced, in its fullest sense, the new Exodus. And I say in its fullest sense because I think that in the books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah, uh, Ezra in particular is presenting the return to the land that happens there as a, a, an instance of God delivering his people after the Exodus pattern. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. He stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. Uh, the, the Israelites plunder the Egyptians. Cyrus decides, I think I'll fund the rebuilding of the temple. They use all that Egyptian gold to build the tabernacle out in the wilderness, and uh, they use the, the money that Cyrus gave them to rebuild the temple when they get back into the land, and, and we could go on with other parallels. But then, then this, this, uh, this guy is born to this virgin, and he comes walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee one day, and he encounters some, some fishermen, and he says to them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and follow him in part because they conclude, they think, I, I think, they hear him saying, I am about to set in motion this new exodus. I am about to bring to pass this promised salvation that has been spoken of by the prophets, that was forecasted by Moses, that was previewed or foreshadowed or typified by the exodus from Egypt. I'm about to accomplish that, and then you guys are going to be the ones that I'm going to use to restore God's people to him. So this paradigm of the exodus from Egypt is absolutely foundational for understanding Old and New Testaments. We've, we've thought about it from the Old Testament. Let's think about it for a moment together from the New Testament. And what I'd like to do is, is just think with you about some things in 1 Corinthians, and then if we have some time, maybe we'll think together about some things in 1 Peter. Now, um, again, biblical theology is the attempt to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. In 1 Corinthians, it's as though there, there's this surface level, which is the level at which Paul is making these statements to the Corinthians. He's addressing all these problems in the churches. And then under the surface, it's like there's this narrative undercurrent that is informing all these statements that Paul is making. What's the narrative undercurrent? It's the narrative undercurrent of the exodus from Egypt Think with, and, and the pattern of events that took place at the exodus from Egypt. And Paul is going to take that narrative undercurrent and he's going to apply it to what's going on in the church in Corinth. So, for instance, uh, in the church, apparently there are people who are doing ministry in a way that Paul does not appreciate. Probably what they're doing is they're making people think, wow, that guy's a great speaker. So they don't come away from, from hearing the guy talk thinking, what a great Savior, what a great God, what a, what a, what a privilege to, to experience this salvation. They come away thinking, man, that guy's got a great vocabulary, or wow, he's sure eloquent, or man, he really stirs up my emotion. And, and so Paul talks about how he came among them knowing nothing except 
Christ and him crucified, and he's repudiating all this rhetorical excellence. And then in chapter 3, he starts talking about how, uh, in verse 10, like a skilled master builder, he laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. And then, and then he starts talking about the building materials that are used by ministers in the church. And in verse 12, some are building with gold, silver, and precious stones, things that are used in the construction of the tabernacle and then the temple, and others are building with wood, hay, and stubble. Now, in this context, I think gold, silver, and precious stones is the ministry of the gospel and, and causing people to think high thoughts of God and causing people to feel the, the depth of their sinfulness and the weight of God's mercy that he would show in saving sinners. And then he says in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Okay, so um, we've got this temple that's being constructed in the church. A chapter or so later, in chapter 5, look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and look at verse 7, where Paul is calling the church to remove this unrepentant evildoer, and he says to them, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, here I think the picture is starting to get filled out. It's as though we weren't slaves in Egypt, but we were slaves to sin. And then we weren't liberated by a Passover lamb whose blood was put over the lintel of the doorpost, but Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed, liberating us from slavery. And we didn't we didn't get baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Look with, we'll look at that in just a second, 1 Corinthians 10. We got baptized into Christ Jesus. And then we didn't move through the wilderness eating manna from heaven and drinking water from the rock. We're partaking of the Lord's Supper. And we didn't get out to Mount Sinai and hear the Ten Commandments spoken by Moses. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22, I'm not under the law of but I'm not outside the law. I'm in the law of Christ. So we have this new law. And we didn't construct this physical building of the tabernacle. No, we are being constructed into the temple. So this, this pattern of events at the exodus from Egypt is cropping up all over the place here in, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, um, some of these guys are visiting prostitutes. And he says to them in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What are you talking about? You were redeemed. You were redeemed from slavery to sin at the, at the, at the blood of, of Christ. He says that to them again in chapter 7, verse 23. You were bought with a price. And then there's this, this enigmatic narrative, somewhat enigmatic, in chapter 10, um, where Paul... Here, here's what I would suggest is probably happening here in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul has been banging away against sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7 and idolatry, particularly in chapter 8 with these, this food offered to idols. And, and he's either hearing Corinthians say this or he's anticipating this response that goes like this. Hey, Paul. I've been baptized, I partake, of, I partake of the Lord's Supper, get off my case. If I want to visit the prostitutes, I'll visit the prostitutes. If I want to eat food offered to idols, I'll eat food offered to idols. Don't bother me about these things, Paul. I've been baptized, I partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm cool. 
He says in 1 Corinthians 10.1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He's talking about that pillar of cloud and fire that, that led them through the wilderness. And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. I think what he's saying is the Old Testament analog to baptism was that passage through the Red Sea. And the Old Testament analog to the Lord's Supper was the manna from heaven and the water from the rock. That's an interpretation I think is supported by John 6 when Jesus starts talking about how he is the bread from heaven. And, and Paul is basically warning these people, don't think that baptism in the Lord's Supper is going to protect you. We, we can visit later, if you want to, about how the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. I think what Paul means is it was the hope for the coming Messiah that sustained the believing remnant in the wilderness. Then verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's like he's saying, look, they were baptized, they partook of an Old Testament equivalent of the Lord's Supper, and they died in the wilderness. So don't think that you can blow off my calls to repentance. Um, First Peter, briefly, if you would, with me for just a moment. And let me, let me throw in this also. Um, as, as, the, as the prophets, particularly Hosea and Ezekiel, as they talk about the new exodus and the return from exile, they talk of the exile as though the nation of Israel has been struck dead. That's why, Ezekiel 37, you get the, the valley of dry bones. The, the land of Israel is the realm of life. And, and this is what the Garden of Eden also symbolized. It, it's the place where God is present So where God is, life is. To be in the presence of God is to be alive. To be out of the presence of God is to be in the unclean realm of the dead. So when Israel is exiled from the land, they are a valley of dry bones. And in Ezekiel 37, he he sees those bones being brought to life. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So life from the dead, and then new birth, new life. And then he goes on as he's developing this salvation. He's talking about an inheritance in verse 4. And in the Old Testament, the inheritance is this allotment of land in the land of promise that's going to fall to you. And then he says down in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded. That that phrase that the ESV renders there in verse 13, preparing your minds for action, uh, literally is gird up the loins of your minds. And the Israelites, they girded up their loins as they fled from Egypt. Then he says in verse 15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, where is that written? That's written... I think that's a quote from Leviticus. They get out to Mount Sinai, and the Lord says to them, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So it, and then right after this, Paul, uh, Peter's going to talk about how, in verse uh, um, 19, the, verse 18, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. 
um, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. He's going to talk about how believers are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Now think about the, the narrative undercurrent at work here. Christ the Lamb is sacrificed. The people gird up their loins and, and, and come out of Egypt. They, they prepare themselves. They're called to live a holy life. And then they're built up into this, this uh, spiritual house of worship, not building a temple, but being the temple. And then look at 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the ex- excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So it's, it, again, it's like, as in 1 Corinthians, there's this narrative undercurrent of the pattern of events of the exodus from Egypt that's informing what Paul is saying. The same thing is happening with, with Peter. And then look at what Peter says in verse 11 of, of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why would he call them sojourners and exiles? I think he's calling them sojourners and exiles because just as the Israelites sojourned out of Egypt toward the land of promise, and just as the exiles came sojourning back to the land of promise, so now we too have experienced this greater redemption that eclipses the exodus from Egypt such that we don't refer to God the Father as the God of the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. We refer to him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The the God of the Bible is the God of the cross. That's how we think of God now, this defining act of salvation that that God has accomplished in Christ on the cross. And we are now sojourning toward the, the fulfillment of the land of promise, which is the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and new earth. We are those who have been exiled from Eden, in a sense, And we are sojourning home, out of exile, to the city that has foundations, the city that is to come. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So we want to understand and embrace the perspective of the biblical authors. We want to understand how the the authors of the Bible are thinking about these things, and then we want to apply them to our own lives. I'd like to conclude with one particular Uh, application that is commanded for us in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, we're told in verses 5 and following, we read, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I think this is particularly appropriate in light of the context of that statement back in Deuteronomy 6 that we started with, let them be as frontlets, right? I don't think Moses meant for the Israelites to take little boxes of leather and strap them onto their foreheads with some Bible verses inside, which is what a lot of Jews have done through the course of history. I think what Moses meant was, put the Bible in front of your face and read the world through the Bible. Interpret your experience in life through the interpretive grid, the interpretive framework, the lens given to you by the Scriptures. And in that context, he says in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently 
to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you rise up and when you lie down. And so for that reason, I want to conclude with the words of this, uh, this children's book that is subtitled, uh, Salvation History for Kids. Um, Lord willing, this will be out from Christian Focus later this year. And, and what this book tries, what this little kid's book, uh, I noticed when my kids were small that we, re, we read and reread these children's books over and over. So there was a time when I could quote to you, Good night, moon. Good night, moon. Good night, room. On and on it goes. And, um, and, and so what, what, I, what I tried to do was come up with rhymes that would, that would capture each major signpost kind of event across the Bible's storyline. So here's creation. God created all that is, therefore all that is, is his. Here's rebellion. Adam and Eve wanted to be their own. Rebellion in their hearts was sown. Genesis 3.15, judgment to the snake God spoke, and hope in Adam's heart awoke. So mother of the living, he named his wife, for her seed is the source of life. Here's the flood. People never did do good, but God saved Noah at the flood. Land, seed, and blessing God promised to Abram, and the nations also would be blessed in him. From Egypt, God his people saved, and at Sinai, the law he gave. Then by God's power, the land they took, but then their good God they forsook. God raised up David as their king. God's rich mercy he did sing. David's sons forsook the Lord and did not keep his holy word. The people kept not God's command, and he drove them from the land. Then from exile they returned, and for Messiah they did yearn. And so at last God's Son was sent. On an unexpected path he went. The Lord of all, obedient and humble, never did he sin or stumble. On the cross he paid for sin. Jesus, Savior of all men. From the grave he rose again, conquering death and hell and sin. To build the church he sent the Spirit. What good news! All should hear it. For one day he will come again as king, and he will judge all men. So let us trust in Christ the Lord and hold fast to his holy word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this big story of the Bible. And Lord, we pray that it would be identity-shaping for us. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to conceive of ourselves of the, as those who have been liberated, those who have been ransomed, those who are not our own because we've been bought with a price. And Father, we pray that you would teach us the full significance, as, as full as we, can, as we can sustain in our human state of being united to Christ by faith as symbolized in our baptism, buried with Him and raised to walk in newness of life. And Father, we ask that as we sojourn toward what You've promised, our inheritance, we pray that, that partaking of the Lord's Supper would indeed be our sustenance that we would proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, that we would look forward with great expectation, that we would know the one who is the bread of life. And Father, we ask 
that you would enable us to, to be a royal priesthood, to be those who are what Christ has made us to be, a kingdom and priests to our God and Father. We ask, Lord, that you would give us favor as we seek to mediate the knowledge of you to others and in that way serve as priests. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us wise and Christ-like as we seek to live out this identity as those who belong to you and who represent you, who, who rule in your stead your image and likeness in this world that you've made. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you, and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the scriptures. and We pray all these things in Jesus' name.